Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. As we get ready for Christmas this year, our minds inevitably turn to Charles Dickens, the author that we associate with Christmas, its cheer, its hospitality, its warmth, and its hot fruit punch. You'll have seen me in previous years, nursing a gigantic hangover from the history hit Christmas party, which was the night before, cooking with the wonderful Penn Vogler, uh, cooking Dickensian recipes. He was a huge enthusiastic host and he was very particular about what he served his guests. Uh, And so you can go and check that out on History Hit TV to laugh at the pain I'm in, but also revel in the Christmassy fare that Dickens would have produced. But this is a podcast about less about Christmas and more just about the man himself and his writing. I was really lucky to spend time with John Mullen. He's a professor of modern English literature at University College London. He just seems to know everything about 18th and 19th century literature, and there's a lot of it. So goodness knows what's inside that big brain of his. He was one of the judges for the Man Booker Prize. He helped to launch the wonderful Hilary Mantel on her road to stardom. And it was just a great opportunity to sit down and talk about one of the, the greatest writers who's ever lived. Just a huge privilege. Um, if you do want to go and check out the Dickensian Christmas film on History Hit TV, it's the new history channel we've got. Hundreds of hours of documentary, hundreds of podcasts, me and all sorts of other people on there. Please go to historyhit.tv. If you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free. And your second month, just one pound, euro or dollar. And remember, everybody, if you go to the shop, shop.historyhit.com, you can gift that subscription to other people. You can buy amusing knitted knight's hats or crocheted knight's hats. I'm remaining above the fray on that one. Uh, And you can buy one of our best-selling history hoodies as well. Nelson, Richard III, it's all there. In the meantime, everyone, enjoy John Mullen. John, how are you? I'm uh, fine. I'm fine. I've had my crunchy nut cornflakes. I'm okay. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Crunchy nut cornflakes? Yeah, that gives me an artificial high for about 20 minutes. You're darned right. I did that thing where I didn't let my kids know that they existed. And the other day I fed them to the nine-year-old and she looked at me just going, what? You know, where has this been all my life? And I'm like, I know, dude. That's irreversible, I'm afraid. I know. And, and I have this list of things that I, I give her, or that she comes to me going, Oreos! And I'm like, they're on the list. I know, you know, and little does, she know what's, little does she know what's coming up on that list. My God, the treats yeah. that are in store. Anyway, thank you very much for talking. Is Dickens the greatest novelist in the English language? <laughs> I think he's the greatest sentence writer in the English language. I don't think that's quite the same as the greatest novelist. 
He's one of the handful of greatest novelists. The thing about Dickens is that his virtues are also his vices. So he's not, a, he's not like Jane Austen, a kind of faultless novelist. He's a novelist who's full of excesses and sometimes things which irk even the most devoted Dickensian like myself. But he's also endlessly sort of ebullient and inventive. So, you know, you never know what the next sentence is going to be like. And in, in that sense of kind of reading for excitement, he's the most exciting English novelist, I think. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You say that the thing about the Irkings, I mean, I find some of the coincidences a bit tiresome. You know, it emerges that, in fact, it, it, they're all related at the end of... Yeah, it, I think that... Well, I, I, there's, a, there's a chapter in my book which, which is a sort of defence, not more than a defence, a sort of advocacy, actually, of these coincidences. Because, actually, most good novelists use coincidences, but usually they kind of smuggle them in. So... You know, Jane Eyre is full of coincidences and Middlemarch turns on coincidences. Yeah, George Eliot's full of coincidences. I mean, there's so much coincidence there. But what Dickens does is he starts off, I think, early in his career, sort of falling back on coincidences in novels like Oliver Twist. But then later on, he takes this kind of weakness of novels and makes it a sort of virtue. So there's a bit, I don't know, for instance, there's a bit near the end of David Copperfield where David gets to visit as an adult a model prison. And the model prison is run by his former headmaster, Mr Creakle. And you think, oh, that's a bit of a coincidence, but maybe a satisfying one. It's the kind of thing he would do. And Mr Creakle says at the end of the tour of this ghastly institution, oh, you must see our two model prisoners. And they open the first door and there is Littimer, Steerforth's butler, sort of oozing respectability in his sinister way. And then he says, well, this is our second most model prisoner, but the next door, now this guy really is our model prisoner. And the door begins to open. You think, I know who it's going to be. And it's Uriah Heep, of course, whose habits of humility have recommended him to the prison authorities as being the top prisoner. And he comes out saying, I'm so grateful for being a prisoner. And it's the most absurd coincidence and the most brilliant coincidence because, of course, that's where those two people psychologically deserve to end up. Yes, that no, that I, I I give you that. That's for sure. But but you know you've got Mister 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 Brownlow that turns out to be Oliver Twist's grandfather in Oliver, and then and then obviously the gigantic coincidence in Tale of Two Cities as well. But but you're right. You forgive him more than you do say George Eliot because what he doesn't do as much is I always think with George Eliot. There's almost no problem in Georgia that couldn't be solved with a mobile phone and some contraception. <laughs> you know, there's, there's less, oh, if only we'd been at the bridge an hour earlier, we'd have avoided this whole great tragedy that's subsequently unfolded. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that's fair to George Eliot, really. <laughs> <laughs> I think George Eliot, the tragedies always happen because people don't understand each other. That's why they happen, okay, bluntly. Well but, but, I th but I mean, the point is they're very different kinds of writers, aren't they? And, and that Dickens, I think that you talked about Mr. Brownlow and Oliver Twist. I think at that stage, you know, it's his, it's his second novel. He is still, I mean, it's like a fable, isn't it? It's like a fairy tale. And he's using coincidences because he, he has to, to get it to work. But I think coincidence is one of those things that Dickens takes, which is an usually a sort of an error or a failure of taste of a kind of, more polite writer, and makes it a virtue. And I think that's one of the great things about him, that he takes from cliches to repetition to coincidences, he takes all these things which writers aren't supposed to do 
and does them. <laughs> I, I agree. But can I ask the kind of big, for the historians listening to this podcast, we're all fascinated yeah. by Dickens as a 19th century observer and chronicler, uh, as well as a, a writer of fiction. And I picked up Hard Times the other day, partly because it's the shortest Dickens novel, but also it just is one that is just unbelievably powerful talking about this new economy and the way it just absorbs and, and obliterates the lives of the characters in this mill town. Coke town, I think it was called. Uh, yes. what, what, where are we on Dickens's politics, on the importance of, of time and place for Dickens as a writer? Well, I think that the time and placeness for historians gets sort of less specific as through his career in a way. So in Oliver Twist, he's writing about reforms to the poor law or other specific kind which have just gone through Parliament. In Nicholas Nickleby, he's writing about these terrible Yorkshire schools which actually existed at the time. And I always think, you know, his last completed novel, Our Mutual Friend, begins with a sentence which sort of, I think, represents where he got to, where he says, in these times of ours, though concerning the exact year, there's no need to be precise, dot, 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 dot. And so he becomes a writer of these times of ours, but not of a specific year or specific kind of political arguments that are going on. And even in hard times, it seems to me as a kind of brilliant, bleak, satire on what always got his goat most, which was the sort of brilliant rational schemes of managers and politicians and reformers. And actually often, I think, I don't think Dickens, he, he was more radical when he was younger, but by his middle age, he wasn't really politically radical because he often thought that the worst things happened when people had brilliant ideas for reforms to make things better. And they sat around in committees and they'd all read Jeremy Bentham and or Mugg's Guide to Jeremy Bentham. And they had a great idea of how to solve things. And that, actually, Dickens often thought was the most dangerous thing of all. Yeah, and, and you see that with, with, with sort of un, un, painfully undoing and un, un, un learning so many of the lessons of the 19th century, or some of the decisions made, whether it's filling up our atmosphere with carbon or draining the fens or whatever it might be. And I think that Dickens feels quite modern in yes. that way. Um, and also his Tale of Two Cities feels fairly patriotic in, in, a, in a sort of small-c conservative Anglophile way, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It is. I mean, it... But, but big, it's big also... question there, buddy. Big question. Sorry. No, no. It's, it, I mean, it is. But also, you know, it is in some ways a bleakly conservative novel because it's an account of what happens when a combination of the cruelty of traditional hierarchy and you know, the kind of Leninist schemes of a few radicals combine. I don't think Dickens thought of it as a sort of, that that was a French ailment alone. I mean, I think he thought it was a human ailment. Yeah, I, I find those scenes in Soho curiously comforting, though, when he builds this, <laughs> you get a sense. You do, there's a, there's a, there's a whiff of this sceptered isle uh, and out sort of exceptionism of, of, of the happy the happy way that it, it, um, jolly England has gone in, in, those, in those little chapters. It feels so safe and comfortable. 
Yeah, I mean, it is an historical novel, isn't it? And yeah, I think he thinks that in a sort of Dr. Johnson-like way that British sort of truculence and irreverence are kind of um, national virtues which might preserve us from the horrors of revolution. Yeah, well, and, and again, he pressures the 20th century. You know, you, you read about whether it's the Russian Revolution, the Iranian Revolution, you're just left with a profound sense that you wish that all, everyone could have lost <laughs> this. Um, and, and that, of course, he gives us, he, he brilliantly articulates that with the evil aristocracy in front. Of course, I mean, he gets it, you know, he gets a lot of it from Thomas Carlyle, whom he, he loves and admires. And I think that Dickens thought that A Tale of Two Cities was to some extent a, a novelization of what Carlyle had taught everybody. And one of the kind of weird, interesting things is, of course, uh, Carlyle's French Revolution, which I don't think is read much anymore because it's so vast, but it's difficult to sort of overemphasize how admired it was in his own day. And one of the weird things about it is like a Hilary Mantel novel, it's written in the present tense. And extraordinary no historical narrative had been like this before as if you're living it out day to day and Dickens nicked that too so one of the things that he introduced to his novels most famously in Bleak House I guess was sort of interleaving narrative in the past tense where you're standing above it all and you understand what has happened because you're looking back and narrative chapters in the present tense where it's all just unfolding without a pattern accidentally, randomly, and he got that from Carlyle. That's, that's fascinating. Again, talking about the place that he occupied was it within history, you mentioned he became less radical as he got older. Are we to believe David Copfield is, is the most biographical novel? Or is that just a cliche? Or, and, and... No, I think that's absolutely true, because Dickens, Dickens admitted it was. And, you know, when he wrote his other semi- well, there's bits of his life, of course, in, in, in other things like The Debtor's Prison in Little Dorrit, but Great Expectations, his other wholly first-person novel, when, when he sat down to write it, before he wrote it, he reread David Copperfield to try and save himself from replicating these kind of autobiographical elements which he knew he'd put in David Copperfield. So, you know, after all, it's the story of somebody who becomes a novelist. Yeah, exactly. And but but also the story of someone who, now that you mention it, becomes a little bit more, I think, a little bit more establishment. He, he loses because his childhood is so unbelievably crap. Yeah. And he see, you know, he works in the bottle factory. He absolutely works in the most grinding conditions. And he's shafted by the, the, the kind of intellect, the, the education establishment he's sent to, very yes. traditional. And yet Copperfield doesn't doesn't seem to carry that radicalism or that trauma through to his the last few chapters, which feel he feels very content, and I wonder if that's that's also reflects Dickens's journey. Mm, I don't know because you know I was comparing it to Great Expectations, and the striking thing about that novel, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful book, is but it's the opposite of what you've just said. That's true. That's it's true. a novel whose protagonist, you know, crawls up, climbs up, is obsessed with social mobility, gets a kind of bequest from out of nowhere, which he, he misinterprets, which is going to make him a gentleman. But the whole novel is looking back with kind of, you know, really sort of sometimes crippling self-condemnation about the illusions of social mobility. It's a novel about apparent social mobility. 
And that's clearly as true a novel for Dickens as David Copperfield was. So I think it is the case, you know, Dickens is the most self-made great novelist in the English, in Britain anyway, or writing in Britain ever. And that is really important to the way he writes and in really crucial. He was proud of that. You know, he was proud of that. So you might say David Copperfield reflects that, the capacity to sort of win through by dint of your own energy and talent. And Dickens had the attitudes to sort of money and possessions and things of somebody who came from that background. Never has earning money been more important to a great writer. But it was all because, and yet he satirises, of course, (laughs) throughout his fiction, the obsession with wealth and money. But that's a natural paradox because he felt that he got it all for himself. And then his descriptions of have become famous, obviously, of Christmases, but also of, of hospitality, of food, of drink, of companionship. They feel yeah. so important in Dickens's novels. And is that is that a product of someone who grew up without those material comforts? Yes, I think it is. And I think it's the product of somebody for whom those comforts were really a big deal throughout his life. You know, sometimes my students say to me, what did he spend his money on? And apart from spending it on his various feckless relatives whom he had to sustain, he spent a lot of it on hospitality. It it might be worth saying at a time when Dickens, the person, (laughs) is rather, stands rather low in public repute, I think, that if you knew him, you were the beneficiary of the greatest parties, evenings, dinners that anybody could enjoy. And that was a really big thing for him. He was always having parties, really, in the grand style. And, of course, for his children and so on, but actually for a huge kind of community of of friends and acquaintances. And then he would end the party at two in the morning and walk to Rochester from London, you know. (laughs) Speaking of those parties, I've often thought, you know, when people ask you your ideal historical dinner party, you're supposed to say, you know, Julius Caesar and and Karl Marx. Socrates. Yeah, Yeah, Socrates. Uh, Surely the answer is actually a real dinner party that did take place in 19th century England, where Dickens and a few of his mates all got round. I mean, there must have been some real dinner parties that actually are the best ever. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And and usually ending, I mean, if that's your predilection, usually ending with either games or amateur dramatics or conjuring. You know, Dickens, I just didn't know when I started writing my book, but Dickens was a very accomplished amateur conjurer. And his favourite... No, really, he was really, really good because, um, you know, as an historian, you might know that it became... It it was a big fashion from about the 1830s or 40s in London was live magicians on the stage and a whole new generation of sort of um, nascent Paul Danielses appeared. They were often from Europe and they came and they were a big attraction and Dickens went to see conjurers in London and he was intoxicated, and he learned some of the tricks himself. And his big party piece was putting all the ingredients for a Christmas pudding into a big top hat and pulling out a steaming pudding. And uh, Carlyle's wife, Jane Carlyle, saw him doing this at some house party on the Isle of Wight and said, he's better than these guys on the stage. He's, he's better than the pros. He was very, very good at that. So you'd, you might get that, you know. So it wasn't a question of sitting around having elevated conversation. It was entertainment all the way. You're listening to History Hit. 
John Mullins back talking about Dickens after this. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss speaking of entertainment how how should we think about dickens's but i mean we we famously told they were serialized they were sort of cliffhangers this was soap opera for the victoria i mean who was reading buying i mean how educated were these people was it was it were they the elite were they genuinely everybody or were they this new artisanal class with a few pennies to spend like who's this who's his audience I think you got it right. A new artisanal class with pennies to spare is probably quite a good way of getting it. I mean, he did, as you say, pioneered these forms of serialisation weekly or monthly. And that meant that things sold much more cheaply over a much longer period. And he, slightly to the disdain of some of his contemporaries, he sold as nobody had ever sold before. And that was really important to him. But it's still the case that the majority of his readers were what we might now call middle class, albeit quite a lot of them would be lower middle class. You know, they were clerks rather than lawyers who were buying these things. And of course, reading them aloud because they were written to be read aloud. So lots of people became familiar with his stories I think particularly in week when they were in the weekly versions, you know, Great Expectations published weekly, a penny, a copy of all the year round. Quite a lot of people could afford that and maybe read it aloud in the pub or something. You know, and actually Great Expectations features a, a scene where a character is reading aloud from the paper in the pub. And so it did reach down a long way. You know, these things rather like, Nowadays, people think they often know Dickens stories without having read them. They were also put on stage, adapted in cheap forms. So the knowledge of something like Oliver Twist percolated a long way down. 
But yeah, I mean, most of the readers were still people who had at least some money to spare to buy entertainment. And so that's really interesting. They're meant to be read aloud. Have you have you then presumably listened to them all aloud? What what do you get that's different when you when you read them to when you listen to them? There are things which you sort of, if you're a good reader, notice without reading aloud, but which are really much clearer when you do. So, little things. Okay, one of the things Dickens became a great, I think, artist of was people's voices, characters' voices, what linguists call idiolects. So everybody has their own voice. And we know that when he wrote, he sort of practiced these, you know. He practiced the looks in front of the mirror, but he also practiced the voices. And you can sort of see that on the page, sort of. But once you have to perform it, you can hear it really, really clearly. When you do... Mr. Dorrit, William Dorrit, with his endless sort of fake ethical sort of little hesitations and qualifications and his hums and haws. Dickens is, I think there aren't many 19th century novelists who include the way people talk, the little noises they make, which aren't even words, hums and haws and coughs. (laughs) And He's writing as if it's a musical score for you, for, for him to perform, but for anybody to perform. So, I mean, that's, that's one example. I think there are quite a lot of other ones. He, he writes rhythms of sort of repetition, which, which when you look at them seem to be kind of rather kind of crude, but then when you perform them make perfect sense. Yeah, and obviously you mentioned Uriah Heep or Mr. Micawber. There's so there's so many wonderful examples. Yes, yes. What is your uh, what is your favourite Dickens novel? Well, I guess it's it's not a very original answer. My favourite one's Great Expectations. Yeah. Uh, just why? Because that is the one that is the perfect one. It's a novel also where it seems to me to perfectly combine the two things that Dickens was really good at combining, which was, I don't know, scariness and laughter in a way. So one of his talents was not just making you laugh. I think he's the funniest great novelist that I know of, but making you laugh when you shouldn't laugh, you know, making you laugh when when somebody's dying. <laughs> um, and Great Expectations is brilliant at combining the terrors of childhood with the absurdities of childhood, you know, and that's that's just just incredible. But with also some, I mean, three or four of the greatest characters in in English literature. Absolutely, I mean, you know, Havisham, obviously Estella. I was obsessed with Estella when I was a kid. She was. Were so, you? She was so scared. I felt very like Pip. You know, he. She was both extraordinarily glamorous and unattainable, but also just like a bully and horrible and scary and just perfectly sums up the experience of unconfident young boys, you know. In, yes. in, in, and, and then obviously Joe, the scene where Joe comes to visit him in London, he rejects Joe, is, is one of the great scenes of, of literature. I, c- I can't stand it. I know, I know. It's painful, isn't it? It's brilliant. And Joe keeps moving between calling him sir and calling him pit off. Oh, and, yes, and, and, and doesn't and he keeps trying to place his hat down, he doesn't know where to put it. Yes, it is absolutely painful. But that is, you're right. I mean that is something that that seems incredibly familiar. It doesn't seem a Victorian novel, does it? And it seems a novel about 
the pains and self-delusions of growing up and the and as you say the the absolute sort of self-punishing fantasies about women that he has you know and I find brilliant the one with him and Biddy that is so when it's really really obvious that Biddy loves him but the best bit of all that the best bit is when having finally realised he's not going to get Estella, he goes, oh, God, what am I going to do? And he does that thing which men do, I'm afraid, which, you know, look at the last name on your, <laughs> on, your, on your address list. And he goes, oh, Biddy. Yeah, Biddy. Actually, I quite like Biddy. Yeah, and she was pretty keen on me. Oh, I'll go and get, I'm going to marry her. And he goes back home to Kent and he meets her and he's just about to say something and she says, Oh, Pip, I'm so glad you've come. You've timed it really well because this is my wedding day. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's what he deserves. But, and also, as you say, the ridiculousness of material wealth of social status... Uh, and and the whole irony of it being based on a convict's ill-gotten gift. Yes. Although actually they're not ill-gotten. I mean, what's so fascinating about it is that actually the convict worked his nuts off in Australia. I yes, think yes, he the, did. Unlike yes, unlike these ridiculous families around him, and no doubt all their wealth comes from sort of general renting and, and rent seeking and slave owning. Magwitch makes an honest man of himself and makes lots of money. That's what's so. He does. He does. And of course, Pip's horror and disgust at the source of his wealth. You know, it's really bad. I mean, he's the hero who most dislikes himself in 19th century fiction. He really, so much so that I think sometimes the reader goes, hey, you know, you're being too hard on yourself here. But yeah, he's disgusted by the taint of crime, isn't he? I mean, it's a brilliantly plotted novel. That's the other reason I think it's my favourite. It's the most beautifully plotted novel of all of his. I mean, I must say, though, I have a coming-of-age story, which is Tale of Two Cities. My, I was on a family holiday when I was a kid, five weeks with my mum and dad camping or some hellishness, and I was a teenager, I didn't want to be there, and I, I was forced to read Tale of Two Cities, and I didn't, I didn't really understand huge chunks of it, but I thought I should read it because... I, you know, I wanted to, and I wanted to be thought of as clever and everything. And then, I, but the bit I understood enough of it. And then my mum found me crying at the, at the end of the book. You know, came around the corner of the campsite, and I was lying on the ground in tears. And she was so happy because this kind of really unresponsive teenage lump of fourteen-year-old boy. <laughs> she, she'd been worried that that I was a sort of lost case, and then she just found me weeping at uh, at the end of Tale of Cities, which is just unbelievably beautiful. God, that ending—it's yeah. extraordinary. Well, Dickens would have been really delighted to have seen you. In, in a pool of tears. Okay. Because that's why, in a way, apart from the fact that he made lots of money by it, he, that he went in for these live readings in the last sort of decade or so of his life because he wanted to see the kind of visceral impact or hear it, you know. He wanted to hear everybody roaring with laughter. He wanted to see people appalled at Sykes beating Nancy to death and he wanted to see people crying as well. The young Dan Snow, reduced to blubbering, would have been a sure index of his powers as a novelist. Yeah, well, he would be disappointed that I pursued 18th century history rather than 18th century literature. But um, <laughs> although you're making me want to go back and do an adult learning course in, in this. Cause you don't have to do a course, just pick up the novels. That's a brilliant yeah, thing. Yeah, that's right. It's such a huge, joyful thing. Can, okay, last, I've got, actually, I know because I want to ask you about Hilary Mantel, who you brilliantly um, spotted her talent so early on. But just the last question, because you're such an expert on Austen as well, who I'm obsessed with. What do Austen and Dickens, okay, coming to, as, a, as the historian, what do Austen yeah. and Dickens tell us about Englishness, about Britishness, 
And are they sort of tangibly different to what is going on elsewhere on, on the continent? God. Sorry. <laughs> I've got you. See, I've got you. I need to ask you these questions I always think about. Okay. Sorry about this. I don't know. This is perhaps you might you might find this not a good answer, not a proper answer to your question. But but I, I think about what do they have in common? Because they're so different as writers. You know, they're almost opposites. But one thing they have in common is they show the incredible sort of accessibility of the English language to those, at least within novels, who want to do something really, really new. I mean, we were talking about Dickens's education or lack of it earlier. What Dickens and Austin have in common is they're both, in different ways, real sort of outsiders. You know, why should these two become two of the greatest writers in British history? They've had sort of three and a half years education between them, actually. And what they have in common is that sort of extraordinary capacity to think that they can do things within fiction that nobody's done before and they don't have to go to do a course they don't have to have expert writers tell them how to do it and they can sort of epitomize and satirize the vices and follies of their own day and make them the vices and follies of every day and and that they incredible sort of creative self-confidence that they shared. I don't know if that is a, itself a peculiarly English thing or not, but I think it might have something to do with the powers and resources of the English language a bit. But I, I would find that, you know, it's a difficult case to argue, but I, I, I sort of feel it's there to be argued. I mean, I must, if you allow me, I'd love to do a podcast on, on Jane Austen uh, one day. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, she's a goddess. Yes, absolutely, you uh, must. Absolutely remarkable. So, uh, and, and lastly, speaking of goddesses, um, you were on the Man Booker Prize the year that Hilary Mantel won it for the first time. I was. Um, I, I'm imagining that was not hard. You didn't, you didn't spend much time deliberating. I mean, it was... That, that... Uh, au contraire. Oh, au really? Contraire. Oh, goodness. Oh, it was... I mean, I don't think I break any confidences when I say it was a split jury. I think as it very often is, because one of the panel, I think... Uh, well, one of the panel did write a newspaper article about it afterwards in which she spilt some of the beans. So it was... No, it was a majority vote, as I think it frequently is. And... It was down to Wolf Hall versus one other novel in the end. But, you know, we were in there. They, they shut you in a room with sort of, you know, mineral water and fruit. <laughs> <laughs> it was a kind of incentive to get it done. Dickens would have and, hated that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you've done this. You've done the, the, the booker, yes? No, never. No, God. No, no. You, you well, okay. Well, I warn you, you get wined and dined until the last day and then you get mineral water and fruit. And no, it was a it was a hard argued thing, and it was a vote in the end. So if I had thought differently, it would have been a different decision. God, you you were the swing justice. That's very exciting. I was Michigan. No, I was Pennsylvania. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I was Pennsylvania. But I have to say, there wasn't any doubt for me personally. I didn't think I didn't go into the last. You know, when we got the shortlist, I didn't go into that last meeting knowing that Wolf Hall was going to win. I knew that, you know, if push came to shove, I would vote for it as the best one. But I didn't know what the other 
judges would do. Um, I, I think I think the trilogy is is one of unspeakable brilliance, and I've, I've, I love her French Revolution book as well. Um, yes, I, I, I feel so excited to be alive at the same time as her. Where do you think? We will see Mantell in the great pantheon of of British writers. Well, that's very hard to say, but I think that you know, in fifty years' time, Doctor Johnson, you stay. You have to wait a hundred years, but maybe fifty nowadays. I think people will still be reading and talking about her books, but maybe sort of overall, because the thing about, I mean, I'm not, you know, it's my job to read novels. A very happy fate that I have, and. When Wolf Hall came out, you know, I'd already read all her other novels and they were all different from each other. There was, you know, Place of Greater Safety, the historical one. There's one called The Giant O'Brien, which is historical in a very strange way. But her other novels weren't historical novels and they're all so dissimilar. And she's a very, she's a wonderful and strange and very various writer. And, And I think that will sustain her, actually. Because there'll come a time when people will go, oh, they'll say wrongly that the Thomas Cromwell trilogy, oh, that was a that was a phase of the day. But she's got lots of other strings to her bow. And I think that will mean that people will, I hope, kind of continue to read all her novels, not just these ones which are the flavour of our decade. It's the way that she put references in to extremely extremely niche historical you know the way that the way that Cromwell would think back on on the Wars of the Roses and make very obscure references like the Battle of St Albans you're thinking how many people reading this I mean as it happens this is right in my wheelhouse but like it's wonderful (laughs) it's so extraordinary and really exciting um and, and, and that everyone can access it and yet it's just got so many other layers underneath it for those who really wish to get to that level yeah I mean, I think it's incredible how she does that thing that she takes sort of the best-known story in all British history. As my younger daughter said, we're doing the Tudors again. <laughs> um, the best-known story, and when you're reading it, you sort of almost feel you don't know what's going to happen next. To, to put the sort of the danger and the provisionality and the chanciness back into those events. Only a novelist could sort of do that. I think that's extraordinary. Well, there's historians out there. There's historians out there gritting their teeth at the moment. But oh, I, think, I fear you're right. I fear you're right. Who should we be reading at the moment? Since your job is to read novels, bear in mind we got history history fans listening to this. But who, so who should we all go and read at the moment? Oh gosh, you mean somebody who's publishing books right now, new novels? Yeah, I'm not sure I have an answer to that because in lockdown or near lockdown, I'm afraid Dan, what I've done is I've gone back to things. Uh, and I absolutely please no novels about pandemics. Thank you very much. Although, although um, what's so fascinating, I'm sure what you found is that you start to reread novels or e- e- things in the past, and you realise that the pandemics were always lurking there in plain sight. Yeah, I know. It's you, you true. Know, and in, in, it's true. In fact, Hilary Mantel, they spent the whole time trying to avoid the sweating sickness, and I was reading that at the right at the beginning of lot. It's fascinating. Yeah, I suppose of living novelists, the one whose next novel I will really look forward to reading, which will be out. I imagine quite soon, is Kazuo Ishiguro. So I know that's a safe choice. He's won the Nobel Prize, but I find his novels really haunting and, and sort of endlessly rereadable. You know, he, he takes sort of six or seven years over each one. And 
He's got one on the way, which we'll publish quite soon, I think, and that's what I'll really relish. They're worth the wait. Uh, Thank you very much. Speaking of books that we should read, tell us what your book is called. My book is called The Artful Dickens. A rather good title, thought of by somebody in a meeting at the publishers. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, The Artful Dickens, go and get it, everybody. Uh, John Mullins, thank you so much. Pleasure. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.